Welcome to the Fig Tree Ministries podcast. Today's episode is the first in a series on parables. We're going to look at what they are and how they're used in teaching. And then we'll take a look at a few of Jesus' parables and dissect them a bit. The importance of understanding the basics of a parable is because one-third of Jesus' teaching shows up in parable. And if we don't know what they are, how they're used, and how to dissect them a bit, well, then we run the risk of misinterpreting what Jesus is actually saying to us, the deepest possible message. And unfortunately, throughout Christian history, this has happened. We often reread a parable so many times that we lose sight of what's actually happening inside the text. So join us over the next few episodes as we dig deeper and deeper into parables and help you to be able to see them in new light. Thanks for joining us here today at Fig Tree Ministries. Be sure that you click that subscribe button below to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you enjoy today's teaching on parable, then make sure you hit that thumbs up button to help us promote the video. So today's lesson is going to be an introduction to parables. It's the first in a series on parables that's going to lead up to a parable in Mark 12. Now, we'll also do more parables in the future, like the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, but these are just introductory videos to help us get a hang of what's going on with parables. Now, as part of this introduction, I just wanted to explain my background photo for the video here. This is a synagogue that was found about a decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, near the Sea of Galilee in a town called Magdala. Now, Magdala, if you happen to be from the city of Magdala, you would be called a Magdalene. If your name was Mary and you were from the city of Magdala, you would be Mary the Magdalene. So this is where Mary is from. And that synagogue, this is what's so amazing about it, is that synagogue right there is from the first century. And what the archaeologists think happened was that as Rome was attacking Galilee, that the people of Magdala actually took their synagogue down. They find the stones from the synagogue around the city, so they placed them in other places. And they did that, they think, so that Rome wouldn't destroy their synagogue. What ultimately happened was a mudslide covered the entire city of Magdala till, again, just 15 years ago, when they were building a hotel and found this synagogue. So what makes this so cool and so unique is that when the Bible says that Jesus taught in all the synagogues in Galilee, then he would have taught here. Surely Jesus would have been at this synagogue in the first century at Magdala, particularly with Mary as one of his disciples. So it's a really amazing place to see. If you ever get a chance to travel to the Sea of Galilee, you have to go stop. And hopefully it's on a day when there's not too many people, because my wife and I got to sit. It was basically empty. And our tour guide, who happened to be ma named Mary, spent a great deal of time with us. And we, it, was, it was really just a remarkable trip. So this is a really cool thing to see. That'll be my background photo 
since Jesus is using parable to teach in all the places that he's teaching, and I think I can see him in there in that synagogue helping people understand the Word of God through the use of parable. So we hope you enjoy this introductory teaching today on parables. The very next thing that we have coming up in Mark is Mark 12, 1 to 12. Now, we're not going to talk about that today, but it's the next thing, and it's a parable. Now, not only is it a parable, but it's a doozy of a parable. So what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to review some parables, starting with today, just talking about what a parable is, how it's used. We'll go a little deeper next week, and then, God willing, a little deeper the week after that, and one of those weeks we'll hit Mark 12. Because as I said, there's a bit, there's a lot in there in Mark 12, and if we just jump right in, well, we'll miss something. So we want to be able to see as much as we can. So uh, I, I am going to finally assign you guys some homework. Because it will be very helpful if over the course of the next few weeks you read Mark 12 multiple times just to, to gain familiarity with it. So your homework is going to be reading Mark 12, 1 to 12. You know what it is. It's a parable. There's a lot going into this parable. So what I also want you to read is Isaiah 5. Now, immediately, if you read Mark 12 and then go to Isaiah 5, you'll see exactly why, because that's one of the pieces that Jesus is using, that metaphor from Isaiah 5. And then the last one is Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. That's Psalm 118. And then we'll talk about how does he finish up this parable by quoting that. But the more familiar you are with these three passages, I think the more you'll get out of it once we get there, simply because it'll be fresh in your mind. So today, we're, we're only going to talk about parables. This is a review. We did it a couple of years ago, but two years is a, is a long time, the way time goes these days. So we'll review um, parable all today, and like I said, the next couple of weeks. So what we want to look at today is what are they and how are they used? So often uh, there's a quote by uh, Kenneth Bailey. Ken Bailey, he passed away a couple of years ago, was a Presbyterian minister, and he, was, he lived in the Middle East almost his entire life. So if you read his books, it's all about interpreting the text from the Eastern perspective. Because they're in the East, they have a different perspective on things. And he says regularly of parables, we have to rescue the truth from familiarity. Meaning we become so familiar with the way that we tell a parable that we actually are missing what's going on inside the parable. That when you stop and you look at, all of a sudden you look at it at a different angle, you'll see something else moving. So as we go through this, it's very important to kind of structurally go, step through and make sure that we're seeing everything there is to see. Okay, so some general characteristics, and I know it's like speaking the obvious, but it, it helps us 
to mentally review these things. The first one is parable, at least the way Jesus uses them, are in story form. Now, the word parable, the Hebrew word, we'll see in a minute, mashal, has a very wide definition. So what we call the book of Proverbs could be a parable. It's a pithy saying. So a pithy saying could be a parable. But it's a saying that you remember. And that's why it's good, because your, your brain holds on to it much longer than if it's just some abstract truth. So what happens with parables is you want to tell them in a story, right? And the story is very powerful. Stories have the ability to transform your life in ways that facts can't. So one of the characteristics is you tell the story because the story is easier for the audience. Now, I know this is obvious, but sometimes we treat certain parables as if they're a real story, if they're true, like they're, you're, rec you're recalling certain events. Every parable is fiction. The reason that's important is because the person who is, who's telling the parable is in charge of all the details. So they have the ability to then weave the story any way they want, and if there's a detail in there, then it's there for a reason. Uh, so next thing is they carry a truth, right? So we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, one of, the, one of the pictures of a parable is a basket. So the basket carries the truth along with you. And then the final one, just at least for Jesus, is he's generally adding a twist something shocking that wakes up the audience, something they're not expecting. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a great one because the priest, a Levite, and the audience would expect a Pharisee next and the Pharisee to be the hero. But that's not what he does, right? It's priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, and the whole crowd goes, what? And he's got a twist that causes you to kind of wake up and say, Oh, I didn't see that one coming. So Jesus regularly twists that. So let's talk about these just briefly. Stories, one, well, they allow you to take the teaching with you, right? So years ago, this is a story, during the sermon, they played a video. It lasted maybe three to four minutes. Now, it just so happens the video was of a Jewish rabbi. They're amazing storytellers. He's telling a story, and boy, you could just see the audience was so into it, right? Didn't last more than four minutes, but a very powerful story. And what I would do is maybe two to three, maybe four years later, during a class that I'd be teaching, I'd say, does anyone remember the video of the rabbi telling a story? And inevitably, someone in the class would say yes. And I'd say, please tell us what the gist is. And they could recite the story. They only saw it once, three to four years ago. That's the power of a story. Is you can take it with you for a long time. Human beings just, we love stories, right? Kids love stories. So here's the, uh, here's the quote. They recognize that parables 
are like a handle. So the, the quote says, a teaching without a parable is like a basket without handles. So if you don't have that parable, how are you going to carry the teaching with you? So you weave a story. And that way, years down the road, someone's still walking along thinking about that story and the teaching, they're carrying it with them. Uh, the rabbis say, they write about uh, Solomon. Solomon gave handles to the Torah. So we've got all these commandments from God. How do we understand them? Well, a parable or proverb is used to understand how to obey God. So it's as if you gave handles to the commandments so you can take them with you. And that's what wisdom literature is. How do, we, how do I love my neighbor? Go to wisdom literature, and that will give you handles to act it out. Because, you know, we can say, love your neighbor. Everybody understands it. It's just really hard to do. Okay, so story form, that's important. All right, so the next one is they're made up, right? They're fiction, which means, so the details matter. If Jesus is putting in a detail, then he's got it there for a reason. He's fully in charge of the details. Now, so what we'll notice in Mark, when we get to Mark 12, he's going to use the Isaiah imagery from Isaiah 5 of a vineyard. Then he's going to switch something. So if you just read Isaiah 5, and you think, oh, I got the gist of Isaiah 5. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, nope, he left out some details. So we have to know the details. Now he's speaking and his audience is priests. So unfortunately for us, they knew their Bible by memory and we don't. So the priests, he can talk in very deep parable and they completely understand what he's saying. We often miss the metaphor. This is what's so important when we read a parable to know that everything Jesus says, he has full control over how he's saying it. Because if he puts a detail in there, it's meant to be in there. If he leaves something out, he meant to leave it out. And then going back, it carries a truth, right? So it's not a true story. We'll, I'll give an example of this. It's not a true story, but above the story floats the truth that you can say, oh, okay, now I can see this principle that lies, right? So it's, that, it's the idea of a handle. You can carry it with you. So if the parable is a bucket, what's inside of it is some kind of truth principle for you to live out generally is how they're used to understand how to go about the world. Okay, now, if we just look at the words that are used that we translate into parable. In Hebrew, the word is mashal. You don't need to know that, but mashal is a way of saying to make a comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like. So you're making a comparison. A proverb can be a comparison. So mashal has a very wide scope. We would, there's a number of things that our language, we would say, could be put in the bucket of mashal. Where in English, we might say, ah, 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 that was a simile, not a parable. Okay, in Greek, parable. And in Greek, that means to cast alongside. Now, this is what we're doing. When you create a parable, you're casting alongside 
some example. So I've got an unknown. Here's what, if we diagram it out, it looks something like this. On this side, I've got something that's unknown, something that's difficult to understand. It's an abstraction, right? So oftentimes when we hear about God or something, we often use a metaphor to help us understand something about God. So there's something unknown or difficult on that side, and you cast alongside of it something that we all know from our own context. So for instance, Jesus would say something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and now he's just going to select something that everybody in their audience knows. So for instance, if he says it's like yeast, we'll look at this one in a minute. Well, every single person in his audience, and I'm assuming today, at least knows what yeast is. And if you lived in a world where every day somebody in your household was making bread, then you're extraordinarily familiar with this, with the characteristics of yeast. So you're casting alongside something known against something that's very difficult or unknown. Okay, so let's do that for a parable, right? So if parable is our unknown, or I want to explain something about parable, let's use something that you're familiar with. Fables. Is everybody familiar with a fable? Yes, okay. So if we look at a fable to say, can we compare that? How do we compare that to understand a parable? So just some history. This is a town called Sardis. It's in Turkey. Has anyone been to Sardis in Turkey? Yes. Pretty amazing that the road is, the road today sits about 10 feet from the Roman road. It's still the same, travels right along the, the mountains, and you can just pull off the road and you end up in these, in these uh, ruins right here. There wasn't, there's not a gate or a fence, but here's all of the ancient ruins. This is their ancient gymnasium. That's where you go to study. You train your mind and your body at the same time. Okay, so this is Sardis. John, a pastor in Ephesus, not too far from here, is a pastor to this church. So in the book of Revelation, he says to the church in Sardis, right, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And if you don't wake up, like a thief in a night. And, and all of that, when you go to Sardis, he's all talking about things that those people in Sardis would know about. It's really cool. Maybe we'll do that one day because when you see all the metaphors that John puts in that little teeny paragraph to Sardis, they're all from Sardis. And they would all say, ah, I know what he's talking about. Okay. That's Sardis. Let me show you, though, this is the lower city of Sardis down in the valley. There used to be what was called an Acropolis, an upper city. Now, this up here at the top, that's where the Acropolis used to stand. Now, what happened was, in 17 AD, a massive earthquake hit Turkey. Dozens of cities were leveled. And if you can see, now, you can see these cliffs, right? 
Well, those cliffs used to be, that was the Acropolis. The Acropolis melted. And so all these, these hills in between used to be up there. And so when the earthquake hit, it basically just melted the Acropolis down and thousands of people died, were buried. So I imagine if, we, if you went under these hills back here that they're now farming on, you could, you could dig up some of the households that were crushed. And it's really cool because there used to be two cities. There was a, the upper city, the Acropolis, and then the lower city. And in Revelation, John says, one of the, there was a huge earthquake, and the city of, that was two parts became three. And that's exactly what happened at Sardis. A city that used to be two parts, the Acropolis and the lower, because of a great earthquake, suddenly became three parts. So now you had people who eventually lived up on these hills. Anyways, that's Sardis. About 600 BC, this, was, this city was one of the most powerful cities uh, in, in the empire, the, the Lydian Empire. The king was named Croesus. So if you've ever heard the phrase, as rich as Croesus, comes from King Croesus. And he had a guy on his court, his royal court, who loved to tell stories. Do you know his name? Aesop. He comes from Sardis about 600 B.C. We all watched the cartoons growing up of his fables, right? And we all know his fables. And they're stories, obviously made up, that carry a, a truth principle in a way that 2,000 years later we're, we're still telling the same stories. Okay, so what's the difference, at least, we can compare a parable to a fable? So the first thing we notice is in a parable, the characters are humans. There was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. There was a woman who lost a coin. There was a father who had two sons. There was a king. There was a landowner. There was a judge. It's all human characters and you insert those characters. In a fable, it's different. You get animals, and the animals take on human characteristics, or plants. So the oak and the reed, the fox and the fish. And now what you do is you weave in human characteristics into an animal that has its own characteristics. So now you've got dual things happening. How would a human act, but also how would a fox act? Okay, so parables, they carry a lot with them, right? And you can see in a very simple story, you can bring a lot of truth, right? So for instance, if you have a fiction down here that says the tortoise and the hare, you all, now I don't even have to tell you the story. You all know the story. And above that is floating the truth principle. So what's the principle of the story? So the only reason you're, you're looking at a book that's created for Westerners. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Because an Easterner, an Easterner doesn't ask you to clarify what they just said, or they wouldn't clarify it. You have to then wrestle with the story. 
Yeah. And the same with the parable. Notice Jesus tells a parable and then walks off. Now, the disciples sometimes come back and go, now, what the heck did that mean? And he goes through the explanation. But so parable and fable are very similar in what they do. They carry a truthful principle. You can see the impact of something as simple as the tortoise and the hare, right? Obviously never happened. But the story is so powerful, it can transform the way that you act in a very simple, truthful way. It's one of the, you know, we take systematic theology classes over in seminary. And as powerful and as good as systematic theology is, it doesn't move the heart like a story does. Right? I can give you facts or a philosophical statement or a systematic theology statement that's true, and people go, okay. Someone else walks up and tells a story, and your heart suddenly starts getting picked up, and it moves along. And there's an old saying that says, a Westerner, a Greek, tries to affect a, human's, a man's heart through his head. It's Greek logic. It's Greek argument. If I could just argue with you, you'll move your heart. That rarely works, though. And a Jew tries to affect someone's head through their heart. And that's the gospel story. You tell the story. It doesn't make any logical sense that a guy who died on a, a criminal's death on a cross is suddenly the king. And people go, wait a minute, I believe it. It makes zero sense. That's why Paul says to the world, it's foolishness. Yet. It moves your heart, and once your heart moves, your head just goes along with it. It's the power of storytelling. So we have systematic theology in uh, seminary, which can get very clinical and boring. And then you, there's, a cl there's a class that we have on culture. How do you reach other cultures? And you know how they do it? Storytelling. That's it. You go, you're a missionary. You sit in the town square. You tell stories. You tell the same story a hundred times. All the kids have it memorized. And they start to see the truth coming out of the story. That's the power of having a story. I'm sure you guys know from your missionary folks that come back and tell you stories how powerful that is. So this is a, I mean, it's, it's a small book. It's not exactly like you have light reading on your nightstand at night. If you need some help sleeping, pick it up and you'll, it'll help you drift off. No, it's. It's full of good information, but it's not one that you just read through for excitement. Because all they're doing is analyzing parables that are all from the first two centuries of Christianity. Not Christian parables, Jewish parables, but they want to analyze those to help us understand Jesus' parables. So, for instance, there are, they count 1,500 different rabbinic parables that we know of, that you can find that are different. Jesus tells about 40. Some people count 35, depending on how you count them, but they come up with 40. So you can see that in the world of rabbinic Judaism, par parables are all over the place. And it can be helpful to understand Jesus' parables by looking at what other parables are told. Well, there are a few scholars that wonder if Jesus wasn't the first 
to have the, these, the type of story parables. But you're in a storytelling culture. I mean, it comes out of the culture of telling stories. Uh, like Aesop was 600 years earlier. So you're in a culture of telling stories. And how do you explain these diff difficult concepts? Well, you weave them into a story. So there's a scholarly debate on everything. So, Okay, a full one-third of Jesus' teaching is in parable. That's why it's so important that we understand that we don't just read past them too quickly. I don't know if it's a parable, but they're talking about a rabbi, very famous rabbi. If you have an Orthodox Jewish friend, uh, Rabbi Mir is his name. He lived about 150, 150 to 160 AD, so about 100 years after Jesus. Rabbi Mir was a master at parables. And there's a quote that says, when he talked, when he had public discourse, the way that he talked was one-third halakha. That's what we talked last week, legal rulings. Here's what the, the Bible says, I tell you, do this. He talked one-third halakha, one-third in narrative, and one-third in parable. That's what the quote says. And he was wildly popular because of his storytelling. Eastern scholars that look at Jesus, guess how he taught? One-third in legal rulings, one-third in narrative, and one-third in parable. So there's something going on in Israel in that day, how they teach, or how they like to teach. Coincidentally, that's how Jesus' teaching shows up. Okay, so here's some examples. Almost all rabbinic parables deal with the same things. It's all these unknown or things that are difficult for us to comprehend. For instance, the kingdom of God. That's one that Jesus starts a lot of his parables with, trying to help you understand what this kingdom of God business is. Another one is God's relationship to humanity. So you get parables with a king, with a judge, with a father, and that represents God's relationship to humanity. You get human, humanity to humanity, human to human. How, do we, how are we supposed to get along? You tell a parable. And then the last one is if there's a commandment. So a difficult commandment, tell a parable and help people understand how you're supposed to act that commandment out. Now, what are the things that are known? Well, I've said them over and over, but you've got a king, a shepherd, a father, a farmer, a judge. It's, it's all of the things from our world that we all understand what the characteristics are. Okay, now, turn to Matthew 13.33. It's great. A parable in one sentence. He spoke to them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, now I, I took this from what's called the Jubilee translation, so if it looks a little funny, but I, I, I picked it for a reason. The kingdom of, of the heavens is like leaven, which a woman took and hid into three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. There's a parable, right? Very simple. So what do we have to do? Us Westerners have to break it down systematically. Because if this would be Jesus' sermon, he'd walk up, 
he'd say one thing, he'd walk off the stage, and we'd all be like, let me think about that for a minute. Okay, so let's break this parable down. Oh, sorry. Let's not break the parable down. The kingdom of heaven is, uh, is like leaven, which a woman took and hid into three measures. Now, who has something different than three measures? A large amount. 60 pounds, right, okay. Three pecks. And immediately, you know, us Westerners, how big is a peck? That's what we want to know. Okay, well, let's look at the, what the NIV did. The NIV, their newest translation, 2011, is going to try to help you out. So NIV says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds. Now, for those of you who make bread, how much bread is 60 pounds? How's, how's that neat? It's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, how are you doing kneading 60 pounds of bread? Now, so he's noticed, though, he's got an outsized size of, of bread going on or flour. So there's something happening. He's, he's twisting something into the story that the people are going to say, aha, I know where he's going with this. So let's break it down. Now we can break it down. So the unknown, the difficult is obviously, what's this kingdom of God business? How do we describe how this works or how it operates? And he says, well, it's, there's yeast involved or leaven. There's a woman. And there's three measures or 65 pounds. And so what do all of our minds, if you're a first century Jew, start thinking about? Where is he pulling this data from? Okay. He's pulling it from his Bible. So everybody turn to Genesis 18, please. What's so amazing, by including just a few small details, Jesus is about to pull in a story from Genesis into his what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, if, if you're at Genesis 18, what's going on? What's the big event? Yeah, now, do we know they're angels yet? No, that's the key. They're strangers to Abraham. Three strangers show up at your front door. Do you leap into action? You leap into action and close the door and pretend like you're not home. No. You break out your finest bottle of wine, right? So three strangers show up. Abraham, oh, by the way, the chapter before, he just got circumcised at an old age. He's sitting under his tree trying to, uh, you know, relax. And suddenly three strangers show up and he goes running to meet them. He doesn't know they're angels yet, right? But his hospitality is through the roof. And so he says to Sarah, there's three people here. Go get, and the text says this. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs. Now, how much is that, right? What's the same volume that Jesus quotes? A lot. 
Sarah, get 60 pounds of bread together for, for three people, and Sarah is not in her younger years anymore, right? The rabbis noticed this. There's some, there's a, is this a discrepancy in our Bible that says that much flour, 65 pounds of flour that Sarah is kneading? Is that a discrepancy? Or if it's not a discrepancy, is it a miracle because God is showing up that she's able to put that meal together? And so they said, well, wow, look at, because of Abraham's hospitality, God shows up in the middle of that meeting. Also, by the way, they're gonna, they tell Sarah, you're going to have a child. So there's, hey, you want hospitality, bring it on, right? Because when you show hospitality, God shows up. So here's the point. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's like yeast in a bread. Now, what does yeast do? So we all have to know the qualities of yeast. It spreads. Once you put a little bit of yeast in the dough, what happens to it? It takes off. Yeah, it permeates the bread. So what's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, once it starts, it's moving. And you put a little yeast in bread, it's going to keep going on its own, right? So the kingdom of heaven is an unstoppable movement once you put it in that bread. Now, how then, according to this parable, because he's bringing in the Abraham story, is that it spreads through hospitality. How do we reach a people group that doesn't believe in God? Hospitality. So if we, we, take our, we take all the things that your audience would know, it's all the messages that the audience would know, that this is the most difficult thing with Jesus' parables, is we don't know the metaphors that he's using. So when we get to this one in Mark 12, the metaphors are just deep, and you're like, oh, man, I didn't quite get that as I read through my Old Testament, right? But his audience knows exactly what he's talking about. Okay, so it's like yeast. It spreads. It gets into the, it works its way in, and it's going to move through the, the whole bread. The woman is Sarah. So they're pulling in a story from Genesis. And then he brings in this idea of hospitality because they interpret that amount of flour that Sarah used as the miracle that took place. How was she able to do that? Well, God must have been involved. Why was God involved? Because of Abraham's hospitality. So their connection is be hospitable and off, and God will show up into that situation. And the writer of Hebrews says, you may have entertained what? Angels. Unaware when you, when you show hospitality to a stranger. That's week one. We, I don't think we fully can grasp the hospitality in the Middle East. It's so over the top. Let me tell you one hospitality story. Sorry. So we were in Sardis, and what we were doing is moving from city to city throughout Revelation, and just down the valley from Sardis is Philadelphia. That's another one of John's churches. And here's this group of 50 people from the West, all in our little backpacks and camelbacks, and we're all got our sun hats on and everything. And it was Ramadan, 
uh, in Turkey. And we're walking through this alley in Philadelphia back to our bus. This woman is making bread on uh, this the old style oven. And, you know, they don't eat during the day. You fast during the day at Ramadan. So she's making her family feast. She sees this crowd of white people stopped outside of her gate. And you know what she did? She gave us all her bread. I mean, these are poor, poor people. She saw us. We were strangers. She came out and insisted that we take bread. And we were like, none of us wanted to do it. We were like, well, we have a lot of food. We don't, you know. But she was insistent. And you don't say no because she's. But that's, in, that's an incredible show of hospitality in the East. <laughs> 